The reading from the Old Testament is from Leviticus 9, verses 1 through 7, 22 through 24. It's found on page 4 in your bulletin. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went to the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful to be together this evening, right now, in this eternal moment. So grateful to be in the presence of the living God, the healer of our hearts, of our bodies, of our emotions, the one that we were made to serve and know and give our lives meaning. We're asking you to break through to each one of us, God. Speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> this fall, I've been thinking about sports a lot, right? Lots of sports. In fact, I've been thinking that sports may be the best modern expression of devotion we have. Not just the devotion of the athletes, but I'm talking about the devotion of the fan. Um, you know, consider this for a second. One just simply the sacred team shirt, right? You see them. Last night we were in Chinatown, and everybody's going to the Caps games, and you know, people put on their uniform, they put on their garb, they're affiliated with the team, they're identified with the team, and when you have a team shirt, you know, it's treated differently than your other shirts. It's something, it's special, it's something you only put on at certain times. It was estimated in 2009 that in the U.S. we spent over $8 billion in sports apparel. That's not a little amount of money, is it? $8 billion. And that young professionals spent on average at least 1000 or over annually on sports events. And I think that's probably just the beer, you know, not, not everything, everything else. Um, and then you can see this devotion as expressed 
and the discomfort that a fan will go through. Whether you were sweating in the humidity, the stifling heat this summer of a Nats game, or you can think back in 1967, which was the Ice Bowl, the coldest football game on record. Does anybody know who that was between? Packers, there we go, that's one. Anybody else know who? There you go, Cowboys. Uh, I think the Cowboys were probably at a disadvantage there. Ice Bowl. But it was minus 15 with minus 48 wind chill. And fans, right, Packers fans, of course, are notorious for the discomfort they'll go through. And then you can think about the rituals, the devotion expressed through rituals. Last year, during the Stanley Cup playoffs between the Nashville Predators and the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, the Predators, you know, have this habit where they'll throw a catfish onto the ice. And uh, there was a story in game one of a man that actually smuggled a catfish in in his underwear. You know, this was he created this special undergarment that he could bring this catfish in so he could throw it in the ice. That's devotion. But for those of you fans here that may feel like you've lost your devotion because of a recent difficult loss, um, I've got good news for you because there's a resource that you can access. I'm not kidding. Daily devotions for diehard fans. And what it is, is you get a Bible verse, and then you get an illustration, an inspiring story from your team and its history. So I'm not lying when I say, uh, do we have anything in modern culture that expresses love and devotion like fanhood does? Um, I don't know. Now, ancient Israel expressed, they made offerings, expressed their devotion. They didn't bring catfish. There were other animals that God had them bring forth, offerings to God. And we have been studying how you actually can see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the ancient worship of Israel. And we've been working our way through these things that otherwise would probably put you to sleep if you read them, right? These are the parts of the Bible that most people go, I'm going to skip over this because I don't see how they could be relevant to me. We're trying to crack that wall a little bit. And as we did, we've looked at offerings. We've moved from sacred spaces to sacred acts. So if you thought, didn't we do this passage two weeks ago? You're not crazy. We did. Uh, It's the passage where Aaron and the priest are being ordained, but it talks about different offerings. And we talked about three two weeks ago. We're going to talk about two This week, but I want to remind you that the foundation for all these offerings is atonement. It's atonement. Now, atonement is a sacrifice that's made, a right that is wrong, but it's not just that. When God makes atonement, he isn't just interested with erasing your sin, getting rid of the guilt of your moral failings. If that were just it, God would be unsatisfied. What God is interested in is doing that so he can have a relationship with you. The atonement is for the purpose of relationship. In fact, literally that word I mentioned means at-one-ment. Atonement, at-one-ment. An atonement is made so we might be one with God. And so he was teaching Israel in their toddlerhood through object lessons, like we often teach our kids, with these sacrifices. Sometimes folks will ask the good question, well, 
were the Israelites and people in the Old Testament saved differently than people in the New Testament? Weren't they saved by doing these acts? People are only and ever saved in the Christian faith through God's grace and through faith. Only ever. In fact, we're told that about Abraham, right? Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed in God. And so you see, it was as these Israelites would do these rituals and offerings in faith, trusting that God would save them, real grace came to them. But they were incomplete. They were pointing to something else God was doing fully and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. He would be the final sacrifice, the final offering. And so I I want us to keep that in mind because we're now going to move to two offerings that in a sense were uh, complementary to what we talked about. The, The ones we talked about two weeks ago had a lot to do with this idea of atonement and forgiveness and guilt removed. But you know, That in and of itself isn't enough. Not only God wants to go beyond that, but you and I have to want to go beyond that. You and I have to ask ourselves, where is my heart? I was uh, meeting with the elders this week. We had a meeting together, and um, I said to them, I've been sort of stuck on a passage in the book of Galatians where the Apostle Paul said, that he had been crucified with Christ, this idea that I've I've died to myself, I'm serving Christ, and that it's I no longer live, but the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself and loved me. And I I said to uh, my fellow brothers and elders, you know, I've really been wondering how much of what I do is really motivated by God's love for me. I don't know about you. I'm sort of convicted by that. I don't think a lot that I do is motivated by his express love for me. I mean, one of the ways I see it is in my own prayer life. I don't find myself often just saying to God, I love you. God, I love you today. Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Now, I know about God's love. I preach about God's love. I feel God's love. I think about God's love. But it's a different thing to be penetrated, right? In fact, many ways, I would say prayer is the key to that. You can read the Bible all you want, but prayer is the way we kind of work that in. But the point being, God wanted to make sure that there were offerings that tested the heart of his people too. So they wouldn't go through motions, just like you and I are tempted to come here week in and week out and just sort of go through the motions. I hope you know that acceptable worship in God's sight is not only worship through his son, but it's worship that comes from your heart and my heart today. That's acceptable worship. And so these two offerings really get at that idea. And uh, one is called the grain offering. The other is called the fellowship or peace offering. But in a sense, what we're talking about is dedication, total dedication, and grateful reconciliation. So let's look at those things together in the time we have here. So first of all, the idea of total dedication, which is seen in the grain offering. The grain offering is sometimes called the gift offering or the tribute, just like a subject would bring a gift to a king. And what it was, you could do one or two things. You could bring a baked cake or you could bring raw grain. You could bring these before God. And many times it was after a burnt offering, 
after sin was dealt with, that you would give this to say, I am dedicated to you, God. It was an act of response. And there were two things it highlighted. One was it was a reminder and a memorial of God's provision. All over our city here, we've got memorials, right? All over the place. And occasionally, you'll go by one of these memorials, and you'll see that someone is relating to it more than like a tourist. You know, they're relating it in a way because that particular memorial means something to them personally. Maybe they had a grandfather that was killed in a war. You know, maybe they had someone that um, right now is serving overseas. But that memorial becomes living to them and real to them. God wanted this grain offering to ignite that. Now, I, when we looked at the idea of the tabernacle, the tent of God, I'd mentioned in all the furniture when we went through the showroom of God, one of the things was a table of showbread. And on that table of showbread were 12 loaves that signified the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as the person came with their grain offering, they were saying this, Lord, I'm giving back to you part of what you've given to me. I'm acknowledging that you own me and you've provided everything for me. But at the same time, I want to say, you expect myself in return. You want me in return. My life, that's what I offer to you. And it's not just the daily bread stuff. Maybe you have the habit in your home where you say grace. You say table grace. That's a great thing. It's a great thing to stop and do that. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. The early church did it. I'd recommend doing it. Many times, though, for me, I, I forget to even mention the food. It's just this idea that you stop, right? You're stopping for a moment and thinking about God's provision. But there's other provision like your gifts, the opportunities that he's given you, the way he's blessed you through advantages that you've had. In the book of Corinth, um, there was division. The church of Corinth, there was division and there was boasting and there was all this nastiness going on. And the Apostle Paul really insightfully understood ultimately what was happening was there was lack of gratitude for what God had given. This is what he says. He says, he tries to answer this idea of why are you guys fighting? Why do you envy each other? Why is there all this competition and division? And he says this, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? You know, when you and I don't regularly thank God for our gifts and our abilities and opportunities, it gets moldy with pride. It's the bread that will get moldy with arrogance. That's just the way it works. It's not enough for you and I just to give praise to God for, hey, you gave me bread and thanks that I had some money and thanks I feel better. It's all those other areas of life. Are you offering them as dedication to God? One of the signs will be, do you regularly give thanks for them? What you do. And it, it really, at the heart of that, gets to the gospel of grace. I was, uh, last night or two nights ago, Meg and I were invited to go to our newest partner ministry at our church, the Christian Legal Aid of D.C. They had their fall banquet. And we went, and it was such a Wonderful evening, encouraging time. And the speaker was Christine Edmondson, who's a professor at Calvin College. And she said many things that were really insightful. She talked about basically um, 
She said, I've come to believe that the things we most fear reveal the things we most love because we don't want to lose them. That was, that was good. That was something to think about. And then she went on to say, I think a lot of the fights and divisions we have in our country are ultimately about what's in our heart. You know, what we fear, what we hold on to. And then she said, even within the church, and this was, this was one of those, uh, I think, penetrating moments for me where she said, I feel like Christians have a version of the prosperity gospel, just an American flag flies over it. And what she was saying was, it's very easy for American Christians to sort of basically buy into this American narrative, whether they're looking at poverty or things like that, and basically say, listen, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. You should too. And so Christians have that belief underneath, and it is an affront to the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about responsibility. But what I'm talking about is, what are you responding out of? Do you and I really, do we live in a meritocracy? Do we believe that basically what I offer to God is because of what I've done? This isn't an offering that God would receive, but one out of thanks. There's one other aspect of this grain offering, and that is, um, if you brought the raw grain... It had to be uncorrupted. And here we have one of these Old Testament laws. You go, why in the world does God care about this? He would say, you better bring the, you bring the grain, but don't put honey in it or leaven. They're like, what's the big deal with that? Is there something intrinsically wrong with honey and leaven? Well, honey and leaven was, you know, fermenta- decay leading to fermentation. It was another object lesson. It was another symbol where he was saying, I don't want anything that would cause corruption in it. So you'll bring me the raw grain with just oil, but nothing else. In fact, the language is often used, God will say, the salt of the covenant. The only thing you could put on that raw grain was salt. Because God used salt as a symbol for the way his enduring promises are preserved. And so as people came forward, he wanted this from them as well. He said, I want that part of you that isn't corrupt. I want that part of you, you know, let's say, as you offer your work to me, do it without the corruption of envy and competition. Well, competition's not all bad. I should qualify that. But envy, selfish ambition, all these different things. You know, offer it without the leaven of selfishness. The level of you know the leaven of arrogance. I'm going to offer you my offering, uncorrupted God. This is what He wants. And as we do, we're reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where we're told this: "I appeal to you by the mercies of God." Right? That's the grace of God, the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Whatever you do. So whatever you and I are offering to God, we're looking at it closely and going, are there corrupt things in it? For instance, offering your listening ear to someone. Now, since I was in a bunch of social settings the last couple days, you know, you're always in those sort of conversations. And sometimes when you're in a conversation, you're looking to upgrade, right? You're sort of like, you're sort of like, all right, I'm pretty much done with this one, right? 
And, uh, you know, and maybe the other person isn't done, but, you know, what, what does it look like to offer your listening ear to someone in a way that's not corrupted by your own self-image? Or contentment. What does it mean to offer your body image to God? Uncorrupted. There's a psalm that says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, are you able to say that? Whatever state you're in, no matter how your bones ache or you're not at your ideal weight, are you able to offer it uncorrupted to God and say, I am content with how you purposed me to be. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by you. And so, the grain offering gets us this idea of total dedication to God offering back. But let's hit the last one, and that is the peace or fellowship offering, grateful reconciliation. There were three sort of fellowship offerings, a Thanksgiving one, one you did if you were going to give a vow, and another one I'll call the just cause. Not justice cause, but just cause. It was a free will offering. It was the one where you would say, you know, they, you'd come up to the priest and he might say, why are you here? And you'd say, just cause. Because God's so good to me. Because I just love him. It was completely voluntary. And God wanted to put that in there again because worship should be voluntary. As you're sitting here, there's a sense, yes, where you and I go through a ritual of worship. And it's work. C.S. Lewis would say sometimes worship is like digging in waterless channels. You know, you just feel like, oh, man, we're digging each week, digging this week, and you're hoping God sends you a little bit of water, a little, little refreshment. But he wants to make sure that you and I are freely worshiping him. And that really gets into a lot of things here. Is my worship motivated by guilt? You're not freely worshiping him. Is it motivated because I'm hoping he's going to get me something? You're not freely worshiping Am I worshiping because I'm trying to erase what happened this past weekend? You know, you're not freely worshiping. Free worship comes out of grace. Our hearts are stirred that way. And there are three things that sort of enable that. And here, you know, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm trying to bring to you is this question. Do you experience the love of God emotionally? Do you experience the love of God emotionally? not just rationally. And as we do, I think these you know, offerings bring us to that. There's a couple things that help us to launch off to that. One is, with the fellowship and peace offering, they were atonement-based. Okay, We talked about atonement. They were atonement-based. Today, when people talk about religion, it's usually subjective. You know, The idea is this. I have peace with God, meaning I feel peaceful toward him, you know, when I'm taking a hike, when I'm in a really pretty place, you know, I feel when I've, when I've had a really good joint, you know, I feel peaceful toward him. Whatever it would be, whatever it would be, you know, I, I'm kind of in this great place with God. The thing about the Christian faith is peace is objective before it's subjective. It's something concrete outside of you. This is actually something you and I ought to be very glad about. That means that your true state of peace is not bound to how you're feeling. There was a great old book written by a guy named Horatius Bonar called God's Way of Peace. You've got to work a little bit through the language, but I would encourage you to read it. It's so good. But I want to give you a, a quote. Listen to this. I think it's so insightful in of our day. In all false religion, 
the worshiper rests his hope of divine favor upon something in his own character or life or religious duties. The Pharisees did this. The Pharisee did this when he came into the temple and he said, thanking God that he was not as other men. Jesus tells that parable. So do those in our day who think to get peace by doing, feeling, and praying more than others, or than they themselves have done in times past, who refuse to take the peace of the free gospel till they have amassed such an amount of this doing and feeling that will ease their conscience and make them conclude it would not be fair for God to reject them in their service. No amount of praying or working, or feeling can satisfy the righteous law or pacify a guilty conscience or quench the flaming sword that guards access to God. That which makes it safe for you to draw near to God and right for God to receive you must be something altogether away from and independent of yourself. Your liberty of entrance must come from something which he has accepted, not from something which he has condemned. You hear what he's saying there? It's this way of operating with God, where my sense of peace is in what I do, what I feel, how I behave. That's the ground, and so it's constantly up and down. But listen what the gospel says. By the way, fellowship offerings, peace offerings, always followed guilt offerings. It was only after the guilt offering happened that the fellowship offering would be given Why? Because peace follows atonement. Our peace flows out of God's grace. Listen to Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by your doing and your feeling and your Bible study. You've been brought near. No, it's not that. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The peace offering was foreshadowing that God would make peace through his son, Jesus Christ. And you and I will never have consistent peace. I don't care what religion you're pursuing. I don't care if it's a secular form of peace you're trying to get through your job and what you're trying to do. You will never have consistent peace unless it's outside of you first unless it's ground in the one who decides whether or not there's peace. I mean, I could sit here and go, you know, I'm at peace with God. Have you ever thought you were at peace with someone and you realized you weren't? You know, you walk in and you say hey to your roommate, hey, how you doing? Nothing, right? Or you send a text to someone and you're like, ooh, what was that? Listen, we're constantly clueless that we're not at peace with people. It's the same with God. But the gospel says... You do have peace. It's Jesus. And so when your conscience begins to make you feel low, and when you feel like, you know, it's up and down, you're going like this. Peace. Peace. He's my peace. What the Son of God has done on my behalf. And at that point, I can begin to experience subjective peace. But the last two, quickly. The fellowship and peace offering are not grounded in atonement, but it's also testimony. Oftentimes when someone brought in a fellowship offering or peace offering, they gave testimony. They said, I want to tell why I'm bringing this. Hannah, Old Testament, couldn't have a baby, prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Finally, God answers that prayer, and she brings an offering in, 
and then she bears testimony. Mary, the mother of Jesus, actually picks up her words later when she's thanking God for the salvation of Jesus. So here's, here's my question. How often do others hear you bear testimony? How often do others hear you, whether you're, it's, they're a Christian or not a Christian, they hear you bear testimony about what God has done for you? Because that, will, that shows that you've actually been making offerings. No testimony, no offering. And so you and I regularly have to recount, you know, this is what he's doing. And, and the beautiful thing about our faith, too, it's not just like a happy, smiley face. It's not, you know, it's not like a, the smiley face. What are those things called again? Emojis? Yeah, I, that, I can't get on with that word. That's just a hard word for me to say, emojis. Anyway, so, right. But, you know, you got the smiley emoji and you got all these. It's not like that's what we're talking about here in testimony. The beautiful thing about our book is our testimony might be like Job, though he slay me. Though I feel like I've been slain, or Jeremiah, I feel like in many ways God has torn me in two. I feel like in many ways he has dragged me through the mud. But still I have this lingering memory that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Your testimony might be, I feel so broken up right now, and I'm barely holding on, but I'm holding on. You know, the testimony that you and I bring is the praise of what, what we understand God to be committed to doing in our lives. But lastly, this peace offering was also a feasting on fellowship, feasting on relationship. Here's what would happen. The priest would get part of the food, God would get the inward parts of the food, but then the offerer got some food too. And so what is he doing? They're sharing a meal together. You get to share a meal with God. This is the the fellowship offering. You know, when you share a meal with someone, a lot's happening, isn't it? A lot happens over tables and meals. And he wanted, he wanted the worshiper to know that you can sit at a table with me. You can have that kind of fellowship with me. You can have that kind of friendship with me. We can have those kind of conversations. We can have that sort of laughter. We can have that sort of empathy for each other. And of course, that was just looking ahead to this. The Lord's Supper. Right? This is the table where Jesus says these elements are basically me sacrificed. And so in this sacrifice, fellowship is brought to us. Jesus says, you know, that one day you and I will sit at a table in the new heavens and new earth, and I'll have this meal with you. But he's present now. We take this meal week to week to remind ourselves that God wants to have communion with you. That table is there to convince you of that. He wants to have that sort of relationship and friendship. He wants to sit down with you. And so we come and we believe and we take these things. But are you enjoying the meal? The first time we ever had the Lord's table at this church, uh, it was our first worship service in 2003. Four, 2004. 
Some of you, I'm just curious, how many of you were here for our worst, first worship service, our worst worship service, first worship service? That's awesome. First worship service, 14 years ago. And uh, we had communion, and I invited a friend of mine who's a pastor up in New York who is uh, blunt. And, uh, you know, after the service, he said, man, it was great service. But he said, dude, I, I got to tell you, man, your communion felt like a funeral dirge. I'm like, man, everybody, you know, it's just the music you chose was like this, and everybody sort of, you know, going through it. And, and he was like, it's a family meal. It's a family meal. It doesn't mean we come up casually, right? Because we know what costs the meal. But it does mean that we come up, and we're a family together, and God is at the table. You know, he's the big papa at the head of the table. And we're enjoying the gospel together. And so, you know, we're going to do that in a moment. But I, I just want to encourage you to come that way and eat. Every now and then I try to remind people, you know, give you the background of why we use shot glasses. You know, some of you know, some of you don't know. You know, we use shot glasses because sometimes when you go to churches, you know, you get those thimbles. You know what I mean? And you kind of go, was that moisture on my tongue? I think that, I think I've tasted something. And then, you know, you pick something up and you're like, what the heck is, is that a wafer? I mean, I hadn't, it's the chiclet? I can't tell exactly what that thing is. Okay, I'm sounding really self-righteous about our communion, which ruins it all. No, but the point was this. The point was this. Jesus made 30 gallons of wine, so we wanted to have, I need, you know, I need more grace than a thimble, and you do too. So we wanted enough where you'd have to go gulp, gulp. And occasionally, you know, it's true, a kid will wander into the wrong side of the line and, and they get an extra zap from the Holy Spirit. Um, what was that, Mom and Dad? I think I found the Holy Spirit. No, you actually didn't take the juice, you took the wine. But the other thing, too, is the bread. You know, we, we, we know it's hard, it's a pain to sort of rip. But, you know, don't take, like, a crust. If we run out of bread, we'll buy more bread. We'll get more wine. But it's this family meal where, you know, the feasting is before us. So let's go and take that meal. God, thank you for these things that you teach us and you've taught your people for a long time. And we thank you for Jesus who makes them all real. In Christ's name, amen.